Lord God in heaven, we are glad to be in your house this morning. We are thankful to have a house like this, Lord, here in Greenville, that we do not have to search for on the internet, look for, hear about. Lord, you've chosen that this place be here for all of us together this morning. Lord, it is not a grievous thing. It is not a pain to be here. We rejoice to be among your, the brethren that are in the pews next to us. Lord God, I ask that you will be with the brethren that are going to speak this morning and this afternoon. Thank you for putting us in a church where there are able men willing and ready to get up and speak and proclaim your truth from your word. Right. We, are, we are a blessed congregation indeed, O oh Lord. Lord, bless our pastor, rest him, and mom, if you would, be merciful. We'd be very thankful to have him come back refreshed, rejuvenated, and ready once again to press us um, towards the mark of the high calling. I ask that you forgive us our sins, Lord. It is a daunting task thinking about a new year that we start this morning. Lord, we think of the missteps and mistakes we might have made last year, and we think of how we want to press forward Harder for you this coming year, how we want to redouble our efforts, how we want to pray more, fast more, sing more, Lord, and do our best to be more righteous for you here in this place and in this time. Forgive us our sins. Bless this day. We ask that you'll be pleased with everything we say and do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning. No one who has spoken from this lectern that I can ever recall has ever gotten up here and spoken in tongues. Many people calling themselves Christians today in this town and other places will speak in tongues to their audiences. It Hard numbers, uh, solid numbers are difficult to come by, but it is estimated that around 20% of those calling themselves Christians today speak in tongues. They look down on Baptists like us, saying that we do not have evidence of the Spirit of God if we have not spoken in tongues. Some will take it further and say, if you haven't spoken in tongues, you're not even regenerate. That is a serious charge. We might do well to ask ourselves if we ought to speak in tongues in our assemblies. Are we missing something that God intended for us to have by not speaking in tongues? First, let's define what this means by the Bible definition. I will not read all of these references, but a general familiarity with Acts chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14 uh, is where these uh, definitions are found. Number one, a tongue is a language. Number two, all tongues spoken in the Bible could be understood by native speakers of that language. Number three, it is clear every believer did not speak in tongues. Four, those who had the gift of tongues could do it without study or practice. Tongues, like the other spiritual gifts, such as healing, prophecy, working of miracles, etc., were partial, limited, vague, and incomplete in the knowledge and understanding they communicated. If no one was present who could understand the tongue being spoken, an interpreter was required. Otherwise, speaking in tongues was disorderly. 
Seventh, those who had the gift of tongues were able to control and manage the gift so that it could be used in an orderly and effective manner. When spiritual gifts were ranked, tongues were of the least importance. All of the spiritual gifts pale in comparison to Bible preaching, and all spiritual gifts were inferior to the practice of love and charity. The gift of tongues was prophesied by Isaiah, Joel, vaguely by Micah, and by Jesus. The purpose of tongues, why were they given? There's basically three reasons. uh, Number one, to add credibility to the message preached by the speaker, as most plainly evidenced in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Two, when Gentiles were initially converted, the fact that some of them spoke in tongues helped convince Jewish apostles, mainly Peter, that Gentile converts should be baptized in Acts chapter 10. Number three, tongues were a sign to unbelieving Jews, as Paul plainly taught in 1 Corinthians 14. None of those purposes are applicable to us today. The duration of tongues, when did they start, and are we told when they ceased, if they ceased? Speaking in tongues began at Pentecost. Acts chapter 1 contains the last prophecy of tongues, and the fulfillment takes place in the next chapter. In Acts chapter 11, verse 15, Peter, uh, recounting the day of Pentecost, says, And as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them as on us at the beginning relating to us that the day of Pentecost was the beginning of when tongues started. 1 Corinthians 13.8 Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether they be, there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. It is clear from this verse that the gift of tongues would cease at some point. The only question is, when did that occur or has it occurred yet? Two verses later, 1 Corinthians thirteen nine, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. That which is perfect is the completed canon of Scripture. This verse teaches that when the canon was established, the partial gifts would go away. When was the canon established? Around 70 A.D., the second way we know when tongues ceased is one of my favorite. Because, uh, number two is actually one of my favorite here. Tongues were assigned to the Jews at Pe- were assigned to the Jews at Pentecost that God had raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead and would soon make his enemies his footstool. A summary of Peter's sermon in Acts chapter two is basically all of these language groups understood the disciples speaking. In their own languages, they were curious as to what this meant, supposing perhaps drunkenness. Peter says they weren't drunk, but that what they were seeing was the fulfillment of a prophecy in Joel. And then to press home the point even further, to say that uh, 
these tongues that you are seeing being spoken is proof that the Lord Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. He is in heaven. He is dispensing these gifts. And in addition, God is about to make his enemies his footstool. Well, when were God's enemies, especially the ones in Peter's audience, made his footstool most visibly? 70 A.D. And tongues were assigned to the Jews. That event was going to take place. Another way we know the duration, Micah 7, verse 14 through 16. Feed thy people with thy rod, the flock of thine heritage, which dwell solitarily in the wood, in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old, according to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show unto him marvelous things. The nations shall see and be confounded at all their might. They shall lay their hand upon their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. Right. Micah here tells us exactly how long the gift would last. How many days were there? How long of a span of time was there between coming out of Egypt and entering Canaan? Forty years. The spiritual gifts ceased during the lifetimes of some of the apostles. Paul did not heal Timothy or Trophimus or Epaphroditus. So, should anyone speak in tongues today? Its intended purpose has long been accomplished. Tongues are no longer needed to add credibility to preaching or to convince Jewish apostles to baptize, baptize Gentiles or to give signs to unbelieving Jews. Its prophesied duration of 40 years has long since expired. That gift no longer exists. Paul called speaking in tongues childish in comparison to the coming perfect revelation of completed scripture. Conclusion, anyone speaking in tongues today is clearly ignoring clear scriptural position on this issue. Let us instead rejoice in God's complete and perfect revelation for us today and obey its teachings. I'm very thankful for the opportunity to speak. Um, I pray that you can bear with my poor speaking ability and get some worth and benefit from this. The topic I've chosen is very simple. It's very practical. I'm sure that we've all heard it many, many times. But like most things, just because it's simple and practical doesn't make it easy to do uh, because of the pride of our flesh. The topic is speech, more specifically Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 1. If you'd like to have a look at that real quick, you're more than welcome to follow along in your Bibles throughout, but I've tried to squeeze as much scripture into this as possible, so we might not get to everything. I figure the more words of the Lord and the less words of mine, the better off we'll both be. Proverbs 15.1 tells us, A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. It's hard enough to control our tongues without somebody angry at us, but if somebody's hostile towards us and confronts us, we really have some trouble with it. Now, the Bible speaks about speech throughout. Uh, James uses most of James 3, talking about the difficulty in bridling our tongues. Uh, Solomon spends many verses throughout Proverbs and Ecclesiastes speaking about it. Here's just a couple. Proverbs 13.3 tells us, He that keepeth his mouth keepeth his life. But he that openeth wide his lips shall have destruction. Also 14.3, In the mouth of the foolish is a rod of pride, 
but the lips of the wise shall preserve them. What I'd like to do is just look at a few examples, uh, mainly in our Old Testament, of, of both sides of uh, Proverbs 15.1, and see a soft answer and see some grievous words. First, let's look at some grievous words. We read in many places how foolish words can lead to an overwhelming uh, destruction and end. Proverbs 18, 6 and 7 tell us, A fool's lips enter into contention, and his mouth calleth for strokes. A fool's mouth is his destruction, and his lips are the snare of his soul. Ecclesiastes 10, 12, The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of a fool will swallow up himself. Let's look at a few examples. Firstly, Nabal. We all, we all know Nabal. Nabal had an incredible chance with David. He could have honored David, could have done well for himself, but instead he took a different route. First Samuel chapter 25, if you'd like to have a look at that, verses 10 through 13. Here David has sent ten young men to Nabal. Uh, he's asking Nabal for favor in return for some kindness shown to, some, to uh, Nabal's shepherds while they were in Carmel. And here's Nabal's response to the young men. And Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There be many servants nowadays that break away every man from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my flesh that I have killed for my shears and give it unto men whom I know not whence they be? So David's young men turned their way and went again and came and told him all those sayings. And David said unto his men, Gird ye on every man his sword. And they girded on every man his sword. And David also girded his sword. And there went up after David about 400 men, and 200 abode by the stuff. Now this Nabal's proud and wicked response to David led David to do what any of us would do, or at least I would do, and that's grab a sword and go looking for him. Um, when he could have had a huge opportunity to bless David and help himself in the future as David was king. Well, his life didn't end immediately because of Abigail's intervention, which we're going to see a little bit later. This grievous response did lead to his rapid demise. Verse 38 tells us that it came to pass about ten days after that the Lord smote Nabal that he died. Another example is Rehoboam. We all know Rehoboam was uh, Solomon's son. He just ascended to the throne. He had this great opportunity, incredible opportunity with the children of Israel. He could have shown right off the bat his wisdom his maturity, give a soft answer, but instead he chose a different route. All the children of Israel wanted was Second uh, Chronicles 10, verse 4. Thy father made our yoke grievous. Now, therefore, ease thou somewhat the grievous servitude of thy father and his heavy yoke that he put upon us, and we will serve thee. But how did Rehoboam respond? He first consulted with his, the senior advisors, the advisors that his father had, and they gave him a great response. Verse 7, And they spake unto him, saying, If thou be kind to this people, and please them, and speak good words to them, they will be thy servants forever. Instead, he did what, uh, what does dad call them, the, the basketball buddies. He asked his friends what they would do, and they asked him to respond harshly. Verse 14, And answered them after the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add thereto. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. This unbelievably foolish and immature response was incredibly destructive. He lost 10 of the 12 tribes, and for years and years to come, it was strife and pain. 
Now let's have a look at some soft answers. We know that a, a soft, proper, and wise response can save a life. It can win over princes and it can alleviate anger. Proverbs 15.23 tells us, A man hath joy by the answer of his mouth, and a word spoken in due season, how good it is. Also, Proverbs 25.15, By long forbearing is a prince persuaded, and a soft tongue breaketh the bone. Now we're going to look at some examples of how to break a bone in the best way. Firstly, Abraham. Genesis chapter 18, if you'd like to have a look at that. Abraham used wise, soft, righteous reasoning with the Lord to try and save Sodom and Gomorrah for Lot's sake. You all know the story. We're going to have just a look at a few verses here. Verses 23 through 25. And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there be fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? If you can see the wisdom here, he shows his words so carefully, he appealed to the Lord's righteous nature to try and save. I mean, that's, that's perfect. That's wisdom right there. Even though it wasn't enough, and even though he got him all the way down to ten souls, it wasn't adequate. But still, also consider the fact that Abraham was considered the friend of God. We know a verse very well in Proverbs, Proverbs 22.11, that tells us, He that loveth pureness of heart, for the grace of his lips the king shall be his friend. Having a king for a friend is great, but having the king of kings is a lot better. Next, let's have a look at David. David has many examples of how to, how to use words appropriately. But I'd like to look at his 1 Samuel 24 and his, uh, his use with Saul. It's a pretty lengthy passage. We'll read just a few verses. 1 Samuel 24, 8. This is uh, Saul's been chasing David all over the place. This is after David uh, was in the cave, took some items from him, and he confronts him this way. David also arose afterward and went out of the cave and cried after Saul, saying, My Lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed himself. And David said to Saul, Wherefore hearest thou men's words, saying, Behold, David seeketh thy hurt. Behold, this day thine eyes have seen how that the Lord hath delivered thee into mine hand in the cave. And some bade me kill thee, but mine eye spared thee. And I said, I will not put forth my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yea, see the skirt of thy robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the skirt of thy robe and kill thee not, know thou, and see that there is neither evil nor transgression in my hand. Then I have not sinned against thee, yet thou huntest my soul to take it. We'll skip to verse 14. After whom is the king of Israel come out? After whom dost thou pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. Notice these, these terms of respect and honor that he gives him. He considers him, my lord the king, my lord, my father, king of Israel. Those are a good way to, to grease the skids a little bit. Also, he humbles himself. He calls himself a dog and a flea. That humility is incredibly useful in this type of a circumstance. Right. And how did this whole exchange end? It ended with Saul asking David's mercy on his future offspring. First Samuel twenty four, twenty through twenty one. And now this is Saul speaking, and now, behold, 
I know well that thou shalt surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in thine hand. Swear now, therefore, unto me by the Lord, that thou wilt not cut off my seed after me, and that thou wilt not destroy my name out of my father's house. Perfect. Perfect. Wise, gracious, perfect. Another example, as we saw earlier, is Abigail. Nabal did his absolute best to try and ruin himself and get killed immediately, but Abigail saved him with with her gracious words toward David. This passage is even longer, so we're going to read just a few verses, but I highly encourage anybody to go back, read this. All of it is amazing. Perfect response. 1 Samuel 25, verses 23 and 24. And when Abigail saw David, she hasted and lighted off the ass and fell before David on her face and bowed herself to the ground and fell at his feet and said, Upon me, my Lord, upon me let this iniquity be. And let thine handmaid, I pray thee, speak in thine audience, and hear the words of thine handmaid. Do you notice the theme developing between David and Abigail? Such humility. Example, she fell on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet. She called herself a handmaid. Also, the honor that she gave to David, just like David did to Saul, she called him my lord. Great. I mean, how do you respond to that? Are you going to be angry at her? Absolutely not. Right. Abigail's gracious and soft speech toward David won her a new husband, a much, much better husband. It has been a great example of wisdom and speech for men and women since then. I'm sure I'm probably past my time, but I, there's many, many examples throughout the Bible. It's a great exercise to go, to go through and see how people answered appropriately and didn't answer appropriately in the destruction that they had. In conclusion, I hope this very short, very simple reminder reminder kept us in remembrance that our speech is incredibly powerful. It can either destroy us or it can win over angry parties, calm the agitated, and save our souls. We're going to have the opportunity every day, maybe even before today's over, to have, this, to have a soft answer or grievous words. And I, I hope that we'll take this example and, be, and have a soft answer. I pray that we can avoid enables or Rehoboam's destruction that we might be able to follow the example of an Abraham or a David or an Abigail or the many, many others and try and use a soft word. Even though our, our pride, naturally we want to get angry, if somebody confronts us, we can't do that. Lastly, I pray that we might use soft speech and wise words always to the honor and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you would turn to Genesis six, seventeen and 18, please. Thankful for the opportunity to get up here today. Thankful when our pastor takes time off to rest his body and his mind and also gives us a chance to get up here and exhort one another, and I appreciate that. I will be speaking today, um, first off, about some men from the Old Testament that had great faith and who heard the promises of God and did things with them, did great things, things that we can look at from a fleshly eye and see as crazy. But they did them because they believed God. And I'd like to take that and then use it to convict us to do the same thing with some promises that we have. So obviously Genesis 6 is the story of Noah. He was a man in the Old Testament, as we all know, that was told by God that he's going to flood the earth and destroy it. That the whole world was wicked and that Moses, I mean, God looked down and saw Noah and said that your heart is righteous and I'm going to save you and your family and 
I want you to build this ark for me. Now, it had never rained before, so this is something completely new that Noah had never heard of. It wasn't something that I saw on a regular basis. Right. And not only that, but he said, you know, I'm going to kill the whole world. So if you had a, a voice that came down to you and said, I'm going to kill everything, you know, that would, you might be a little skeptical. But Noah wasn't. He, right off the bat, began building that ark. And he did it for many, many years. And he preached righteousness. And he, he tried to convict people. And he stuck by it. And I'm sure that he had, you know, much ridicule and people calling him, you know, oh, that old fool, you know, why is he building that boat in his backyard? You know, he's like, it's never going to rain. I don't even know what rain is. You know, he's crazy. You know, but the first raindrop vindicated all those years of, of turmoil. Right. And in this, you know, verse uh, 17, verse 6, in chapter 6 of Genesis, it says, And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. From under heaven and everything that is in earth shall die. But with thee will I establish my covenant. And thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons, and thy, and thy wife, and thy sons' wives with thee. That's all he had to go on. Right. He, God told him, he said, I'm going to have a covenant with you. And that was all Noah needed. He said, I know God is righteous. I know God is true. I know he has the power to do it. He promised he's going to do it. So that's what's going to happen. I don't, know, I don't care that I don't know how he's going to do it, or I've never seen it happen before. I know that God's going to make it happen. That's, that's what he did. He did what he needed to do. He saved his family. Uh, next, uh, Genesis 17, please, for the uh, another great man in the Old Testament and mentioned throughout the Bible is Abraham. This is Genesis uh, 17, 19, which is the story of him. Actually, this isn't the story. Sorry, this is the passage that I'm going to use for the promise. The story is him sacrificing his son Isaac. You know, Abraham was a great man, and he had a son, and God told him, he said, I want you to sacrifice your son for me. And looking from a fleshly eye, that's crazy. You know, it's, it's human sacrifice, first of all. You know, that's weird. You know, our God didn't ask us to do that. It's murder, you know, if it wasn't asked by God. And this is your only son, Abraham. You know, is, you're, you're old as it is. What's to make you expect another one? You know, why, why would you do this? You know, why would you... Why would you do this supposed, you know, great crime? Well, he did it because he had faith. And in seventeen, in Genesis seventeen nineteen, God said, "Sarah, thy thy wife, shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant, and with his seed after him." Right. So right there, God promised that he would have a son, and he did. But he also promised that he would have a, that Abraham, that Isaac's that Isaac would have a seed. And that he would have an everlasting covenant with him. Right. So from that, God, you know, we like to say that Abraham reasoned that God would raise him from the dead. Even if Abraham did kill him, he knew God already promised that he's going to have a seed. And that this covenant is with Isaac, the son. Right. So he's not going to leave him dead. He had that much faith, even to believe. And he, you know, God didn't tell him, I want you to sacrifice him and then I'll raise him again. You know, he never said that. God, you know, Abraham just believed it with faith. Because he knew that God was righteous, that he was going to do what he was going to say, regardless of how we could see some, some obvious answer. You know, we didn't have, he didn't have a, you know, any type of reassurance, really, other than just remembering the promises that God gave him and acting upon it and believing it with faith. You know, he had, the faith is substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And 
from that faith, he had a solid object knowing what would happen, regardless of what God told him to kill his son or not. So seeing these great examples in the Old Testament of men who did you know, remarkable things, Noah building the ark and um, amazing things with Abraham willing to sacrifice his son, you know, we don't, we're not called to build an ark. We're not called to sacrifice anyone. We're not called to give something up like that. But we are given promises in the New Testament that right. I believe we, you know, we need to act upon. So if you turn to James 1.5 for me, with me. James 5 says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, right. and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. We're given a promise from God that he will give us the wisdom that we need in any situation. If we lack it, we should be asking for it. Why aren't you asking for it? Why aren't you asking for it every day? You know, we can never have too much wisdom. We're always in, in situations that I believe, you know, we don't have our own strength to deal with, whether that's just responding in a, in a correct manner, like Jonathan told us. You know, if you don't, I mean, if you get angry or someone gets angry at you and you're in a situation you don't know or you don't feel like you have the strength right then to respond correctly, pray for wisdom. Say, God, give me the wisdom to know that I need to respond in the correct manner. Amen. Or give me the wisdom to know how to answer this question or, or this situation or whatever. You know, ask for it because he promises that he will give it to you. So we should be using that promise. And if we're not, you know, do you, are you truly believing that he will give it to you? If you really did fully believe that he would give you that, that wisdom, you would ask for it. It's not just a, a mental knowledge, oh, it says in the Bible, God will give you wisdom. It's not God will give other people wisdom, it's God will give you wisdom. We should be asking for it. We should be using those, those promises and those resources at our disposal. Uh, secondly, Hebrews 13.5. Hebrews 13.5, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So we we have great comfort in knowing that God will never leave us, that he's always with us. We have the Holy Spirit, if we're generated, Lord willing, dwelling with us constantly. You know, there's, there's even few men in the Old Testament that had that level of constant relationship with God. We have instances of the Holy Spirit coming down with them and, you know, for set periods of time and then leaving. We have it all the time. We can draw upon it all the time and we should be thankful for it. And we should have no, first of all, we should have comfort knowing that he will never leave us and he'll never forsake us. And that's, you know, for I read that as forsaking us in trials. You know, when if everything's just going great, you know, you're still thankful for him, but it's not as large as a blessing of Something's going wrong, or you need his protection, and he's going to be there. Right. You know, you're never going to turn around and oh, where'd he go? He's always right there with you. You know, upholding you with the everlasting arms. And also, I kind of see a, uh, a rebuke and let your conversation, let your life be without covetousness, and be content with such things as you have. And why? Why are we supposed to be content with everything? Because we know we have God. Amen. Why? Why aren't you content? I read, you know, I read that as a promise and as, you know, as a rebuke. Why aren't you content if you know that you have God, which is everything? You have the most important thing in the world, Amen. you know, in your life with you at all times. You should be content with just that. So why are we, why are we striving for things that don't matter, temporal things, things that will burn up, things that 
you know, can disappoint us, people that right. can disappoint us. We should be wholly focused on God, knowing that he's there, communicating with him and speaking with him and loving him. And uh, finally, I'd like to go to Revelation 22.20. Revelation 22.20 says, He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come come Lord Jesus. Amen. So that is... You know, a promise from Jesus himself, it's in the red writing, at least it is in my book, saying that he's going to come back to this world to save us, you know, to save us out of this world, out of this, out of this turmoil and this, you know, this strife that we have here. You know, we're not left here alone. We have a comforter. He gives us wisdom. But we don't have to go through it all by ourselves. We don't have to go through it forever. Eventually, God will come, take his elect, you know, judge the wicked, um, and... And bring us to himself. I take I take great comfort in that. You know, it's it's like running a race, and if you never know when the race is ending, people just tell you just run. You know, I I can't do that. You know, how long am I supposed to run for? I'll just, just keep running. You know, you you don't have a you don't have a goal in sight. You don't have an end in sight. You know, and that can that can get you down, or that can be tough. You know, you might not run as hard or as well or as long, but we know that there is an end in sight. Right. That it, even if it's not in our lifetime. We know it will come. We know it could come. He says he came quick. He says he come quickly in the Old Testament. You know, right. thousands of years ago. So how much how much closer are we now? You know, it could come. It could come tomorrow. It could come today. It could come before I get done speaking. You know, but we know that it is that the end is in sight, and we should be thankful for that, knowing that you know God will come and save us and bring us to His you know eternal kingdom. Um, so I'm, you know, as been thinking a lot about the the promises of God this these last couple of weeks ever since I've been knowing that you know we we doing this and it's really uh you know kind of changed how I look at the different things and obviously you know you can multiply these promises over and over again in the in the New Testament and Old Testament you know the the Bible is when I was looking through it I was amazed at how much God really did promise to do things for us you know and who promises to do things you know you you don't just promise anyone to do things you promise people that you know, you love and care about to do things. That's right. Because you really, you really want to do them for them. You know, I'm not going to promise some stranger on the street some some great thing. You know, I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do this fantastic thing for you. Why? You know, I don't know him. You know, but I'll I'd promise my loved ones something great because I want to do it for them. But even me, I might I might fail in that. Even if I want to, I might fail because I don't have all the power. I don't have all the knowledge to to see situations that can arise, but God has all the power and all the knowledge and all the time, and he will do it because he loves us. And I've just been very thankful and convicted, and I pray that we live in such a way that takes his promises and it changes our lives and gives us comfort. Amen. Thank you. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. It's been said several times, it's a great privilege to be in the house of the Lord today, as it should be every opportunity we get to be here. Right. I'm thankful to be here. I've heard amens. I've heard you singing. I trust that you are thankful to be here as well. Amen. First Peter chapter 3, the context is Peter here finishing up some exhortations to his hearers, and he gets down to verse 15, and this is the verse that I want to start with. Hear with me, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, 
And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. I want to talk to you about hope. What is hope? What is our hope? How do we get hope? How do we use our hope? This passage from 1 Peter 3 talks much about our ability to evangelize. Do you want to evangelize to somebody else? Don't go tell them about things. Show them about things. Show them about the things that are going on in your life and how great things the Lord has done for you. What is hope? An explanation for it is found in Romans chapter 5, something that we can't see. It's explained again in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. A dictionary definition says that it's a confident expectation of something yet unseen. It's a close synonym with trust and faith, which we just heard about from our brother Lewis. Once again, Hebrews 11.1, faith is the substance of things hoped for. What are we hoping for? One of the easiest ways for me to mentally grasp the idea of hope is in a funeral. 1 Corinthians 15.19 shows what the world sees when they go to a funeral. 1 Corinthians 15 is talking about the resurrection of the dead. This is a favorite passage of many. 1 Corinthians 15.19 says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. You go to a funeral and you see someone there laying in a casket having just passed away and everyone around them is inconsolable because they have no hope. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13 is the believer. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13 says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. We sorrow for the loss of the loved one, but we sorrow not as though we don't have hope for the resurrection of the dead. 1 Timothy 1.1 starts a list of things that we ought to have hope in. 1 Timothy 1.1, Paul, as his manner was many times, starting an epistle, starts off, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. We have the hope of the resurrection. We have the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians again, chapter 5, verse 8 says, But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and foreign helmet, the hope of salvation. We heard from our brother Zach last week about the warfare that we're in. One of the, the pieces of armor that we have against that warfare is hope. The hope of our salvation. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, I mentioned earlier, those in Hebrews 11 were men of faith, women of faith. But what, were, what was their faith based on? They were hoping for a better country. Because if we interpret, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, it means but by their faith, they were hoping for a better country. It says, it says of all of them, that they were not looking to this land. They were not looking to Canaan. They were looking to a heavenly country, a better hope. Amen. How do we get hope? I love the way the Lord works out different speakers getting up here. Romans 15, 
verse 4 gives us one of several ways we can get hope. We had Brother Jonathan last week talk to us from the Old Testament. We heard some examples from, from my other brother Jonathan this week. We heard from Lewis from the Old Testament. Here's one of the ways you can get hope. I love this verse. I've used it speaking to you before. Listen with me again. He, uh, Romans chapter 15 verse 4. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Once again, we've had these examples brought to us from the Old Testament. They should give us hope. They should give us that expecting confidence that we, we can find in the Old Testament. Those stories are written there, explained a certain way with certain words so that we can have hope, so that we can take that confidence. Another way, Colossians 1, I'd love you to see this with me, Colossians 1, verse 23, another way that we can get hope. This is a lengthy passage, one of our pastor's favorites, and he explained it to us many years ago when he went through the book of Colossians, which I enjoyed looking at some of that again. But in Colossians 1, in verse 23 through the end of the chapter, bear with me as I read. If ye continue in the faith grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you, to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but is now made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. This passage is describing what a minister is supposed to do and what preaching is supposed to do. It's supposed to give us the hope of glory, and it should. It's not lacking. How are we lacking in allowing it to do what it's supposed to do? Are we letting the words that come out of this pulpit or that come through emails charge us to the hope of glory? Right. Another thought from this passage, if there's a hope of glory, then there must be a hell. Because what, why would you need hope of glory if there's no fear of something else? As the world rushes on around us trying to eliminate a hell, we have passages like this that we must have hope of glory or there must, there must needs be a hell to have that hope. Right. How do we use our hope? Turn with me to Psalm 42. Hope is a powerful thing. It can be a judgment of the Lord to take away hope. It can be a blessing of the Lord to give it. In Psalms chapter 42, there's three verses, two verses in here and one in 43, quickly following, that are great comfort when you find yourself frustrated about the world that goes on around us. Psalm 42 verse 5 says, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, 
For I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Amen. Comforting verse when you look around and see the, the seeming blessing on the unrighteous. We're supposed to hope in God. For we don't care about the blessing, I'm sorry, not the blessing of the righteous, the blessing of the wicked. We don't care about the blessings of the wicked. We care about the blessings of the righteous, which is hope in God. Again, 42, verse 11 says, Why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him, who is the health of my countenance and my God. Now, why would the, would the Spirit have that verse twice in one short psalm? I would presume to think that it would be that we find ourselves cast down pretty often. And we need to find ourselves hoping in God and not being disquieted. Right. Again, 43.5 says, Why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, who is the health of my countenance and my God. If you find me redundant, take it up with the Lord. He finds it needful that we have this three times in a few verses and I know in my own experience, I need it three times in, a short, in short verses in my life. Right. And I trust it's the same for all of us. So we're supposed to use our hope to keep from getting disquieted, to keep from getting frustrated. We're to use it for confidence. Philippians 1.20 gives us a verse that gives us confidence through this hope. Philippians 1, verse 20 According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by, my, whether it be by life or by death. So through hope we can have confidence, even in, this, in the utmost circumstance of death. We can take confidence through hope of the promises of God. Hebrews 6 Favorite passage of, of several in here. Hebrews 6, when the Lord's talking about how He wanted to make sure the promises that He had given us, some of those Brother Lewis just gave to us, He did it with, the, with two oaths. And, and God that cannot lie, in Hebrews 6, verse 18 says, "...that by two immutable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us." Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that which within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us, entered even Jesus, made in high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It says, which hope we have as an anchor for our soul. We've gone over what is hope, what's our hope, how do we get the hope, and how do we use the hope. In conclusion, what are we going to do with this hope? How are we going to apply it in the year 2012? Are we going to go on our way, finding ourselves in the midst of despair? Are we going to continue to hang our heads low and walk softly? Or are we going to be confident? Are we going to establish ourselves in the hope the Lord's given us? Do you have hope, and is it evident in your life to others? Our starting verse Others should be asking you the reason of the hope that's within you. I fear too often there is no hope in me for anyone to ever ask about it. Let it not be so of us going forward. Through hope we can have patience. 
1 Thessalonians 1, 3, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and the sight of God and our Father. Amen. We've, we've heard this text mentioned several times by our pastor in recent weeks. We have three ways in which we can assure ourselves of our salvation. And one of them is by our patience of hope. A final verse, Romans 15. Romans 15, 13, another one that we've heard from our pastor many times over the last few years now, and what's become one of my favorites. And this I leave with you as a charge and a blessing for the coming year. Romans 15, verse 13 says, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Lord, be merciful that we may abound in hope in this coming year. Amen. Thank you, brothers. We're told that uh, Scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And we've heard some of that instruction in righteousness provided for us today Amen. with wisdom through Scripture and how we are to uh, use our tongues with uh, direction on doctrine and how and why tongues as a gift do not apply to the New Testament church today. And then we heard uh, all about faith and why it's important and critical for us today to understand the role of faith and to be bolstered and encouraged in our faith by examples provided for us in Scripture. And then finally, the glory of hope, the patience of hope, the benefits of hope, the power of hope that's provided through Scripture. Amen. I would encourage you as we end this first service that uh, we would be on our guard uh, because he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey, Isaiah tells us. As we move forward into this year, let's not let anything tear us away from the hope that is provided in Scripture for us. Amen. Let's not let anything, especially tools used by our adversary, to tear us away from the great benefit and the wonderful life that God intends and has provided for us in Scripture. Right. Amen. Thank you, Brother Eric, especially for your excellent summary of what we heard this morning. Thank you, Lord, for blessing us in our pastor's absence. Lord, we ask that you would bless us, not to forget the things we've heard this day, but to diligently Search them out, Father, to search out our lives in the light of what we've seen from your word this day and that we might apply it diligently to our hearts and to our lives. Father, we thank you for the food that's been prepared for our snack at this time. We ask, Lord, that you would grant us strength and nourishment from it. Bless the hands of those who've prepared it for us. And Lord, grant that we might come back in our second service, Lord, and hear more from your word, yes. more things that can help us to love you and to serve you as your dear children. For it's in the blessed name of our gracious, great King, Jesus Christ, that we ask these things. Amen.